you know, if you look at Google Maps, why, why did it become so dominant on the business side? Well, they had all these customers that are already using them on the consumer side. That is the big unlock there. You get into consumers' lives, you get into hundreds of millions of consumers' lives, then the business side actually becomes easier and easier. You're getting lead generation for people who are just kind of pulling you into their organization. This episode is brought to you by Das London, Blockworks' number one institutional crypto conference where all the top institutions and people in crypto are going to be this March in London, what's becoming maybe the crypto hub of the world. I have a link in the show notes where you can learn more and also a discount code that will get you 20% off. So click the link, find out more, and I'll see you there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we're joined by Ariel, who's the co-founder and CEO of HiveMapper. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, guys. Yeah, we're pumped to have you on. So HiveMapper is a new way to make maps across the world that's leveraging crypto. Uh, You've absolutely killed it. You have over 6 million miles, unique miles mapped, which is about like 10% uh, of the world's streets. And you have over 25,000 contributors, and those are drivers and also people that are assisting on the AI process. And all those metrics are in just one year. So the traction is absolutely incredible. Uh, But before we get into that and the details and the business strategy, I want to start with the history of HiveMapper, because similar to Helium, you launched several years ago without a crypto component. So I'd love to get some on that and the origin story. Yeah, no, it's definitely been this like fun, long, winding road that's also been painful at moments. Um, And so... I'll just take you back to like really my first job out of school, which was um, Yahoo, like 2005, 2006 timeframe. Uh, and so I landed in the Yahoo search group at the time. And it was, a, it was actually a really fun time to be a Yahoo because we were very competitive with Google, right? We had about 30, 35% market share in search, which was like a, a core product and just a very, very highly monetizable product. We obviously had Yahoo Mail. Uh, so I looked after all of kind of all the local data uh, because about 30% of all queries coming into Yahoo Search at the time had some sort of local geography mapping component to them. So it's a very large percentage of searches when you're talking about billions upon billions of searches every single day. Um, and so what happened was I started to really understand, A, how costly it was to build up these very valuable data sets and how you had to actually physically be out in the world. Um, And so what started to happen was Google, with their Google Street View program and other data collection programs, started to actually build their own data. So they weren't just licensing data, they were building their own data. And that's when they started to really pull away from Yahoo Maps and some of our other products in the local data side. And I was like, geez, that is, you know, we went to like the executive team at Yahoo and we're like, we need to pony up, right? We need to like plow hundreds of millions of dollars to compete with these folks. And, you know, unfortunately they weren't interested in retrospect, obviously big mistake, but what it left me, I left Yahoo because like, I'm not, that's not ideal. Um, And I started my first company with this idea of if you can lower the cost of collecting this data and maintaining a certain level of quality, then you have something really compelling. Because a lot of the mapping approaches historically have either been very, very costly, like Google Street View, okay? And therefore you cannot refresh them. You have to have like, you know, very, very highly monetizable data products, um, or you're just kind of like giving it away for free and trying to make your money elsewhere, right? Um, Or you go the full crowdsource approach, But in the full crowdsource approach, what usually happens is the quality bar starts to drop pretty dramatically. And so the number of use cases and applications for the data starts to also drop. And so the sweet spot there is how do you collect data that is both high quality, but also low cost and do that at scale? So my first company was, we had about two, it's called GigWalk, about two or three million people all over the world collecting data with their iPhones, Android devices. This is like 2010. Uh, we scaled that to about 2 million contributors all over the world. There were some fundamental business problems, business model problems uh, that we never really tackled. So it was like a single, like in Silicon Valley terms, it's like a single. Um, and then, so 2015 came around, I was like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this right. And the way you do this, initially what we thought in 2015 was drones, Okay. Uh, you know, we want to build a map of the world. We're going to use drones. Drones seem to have a very unique capability, which was they could both see from above. So you got the aerial map view, 
but they flow, they fly low enough below the cloud cover that you can also see not all, but many of the kind of the street level navigational components like stop signs and traffic lights and turn restriction signs and all that kind of stuff. So that is true, but the problem with drones was that they didn't scale. The battery technology never really improved. So like a drone that you bought in 2015, they could fly for 25 minutes. Maybe that same drone at that same price point today can fly for 35 minutes. You need a drone that can literally fly for six, seven, eight hours at a time to really scale it on a global level. And then the other was just local regulation. You know, the regulation between like San Francisco and Oakland was totally different. So we put that to the side and we said, okay, we're going to go street level. We started off with iPhone and Android devices. That didn't work. The churn was very, very high. Um, and the positioning technology in the iPhone Android device wasn't very good. So like, you know, we thought you were here. You're actually like four blocks away. The thing overheated in the middle of the desert. You know, like you're driving around in Phoenix, Arizona. The thing would like literally turn off in like 20 minutes. So then we said, okay, let's go like use a dash cam. And we use a third party dash cam at first. And that actually had much better retention. Right. So the driver was stay with us longer. Um, but fundamentally, the positioning technology was kind of subpar um, and it did not have good APIs. So we were like literally hacking into these third party dash cams and we go to third, these, you know, these dash cam manufacturers and be like, hey, we need this and this and this and this. And they'd be like, sure, put an order in for like 20,000 dash cams. And we had like four million dollars in the bank, five million dollars in the bank. They were like, no, we can't do that. <laughs> So we started building our own dash cam. Uh, this is, by the way, before we uh, pivoted into crypto and before we, um, you know, raised our, our Series A for $18 million. So we started to build our own. We actually had a customer who was like effectively funding that, right? And so we knew a lot of the challenges associated with it. And then uh, I reached out to Amir. Amir was kind enough to take the call from me. And I showed him kind of what we're building. And we actually had real customers and, you know, real things. And he's like, that's pretty cool. Uh, I'm happy to help you in any way I can in terms of as you kind of navigate this crypto, because I thought that component that they added in terms of crypto was just, you know, incredibly smart, incredibly clever for a lot of reasons we can go into. Um, and then he introduced me to Anatole and then kind of the rest is history, I guess. And we raised the 18 million and then we kind of build out the real dash cam and we start to sell, it, you know, Getting it from a prototype version, which is effectively what we had, to like a real device, that was incredibly challenging. Um, very, very painful. But, you know, we did it. So, cool. Can you maybe walk us through in, in more zoomed in detail on what the discovery process was for crypto, right? So, like, you have this business that's already, I mean, you're a repeat founder. You have an idea. And then now you're kind of looking for this final piece. And then it seems like, you probably just saw how Amir and Helium did it. Was that kind of the inspiration? Like, how did that, how did you even think about going to crypto? Yeah, I mean, we we had some fun, we were paying people in cash. Okay, so we're paying people, and we had some issues with that. One was, you know, sending to cash places like Nigeria, it literally, our business operations person would have to go down to the bank, get like photographed, fingerprinted, you know, it was like... <laughs> provide her passport. I mean, it was just kind of crazy just to send like a hundred bucks or 200 bucks to Nigeria every single time. Um, and it was very costly as well. And then people like in the Philippines start to ask us like, hey, can you just pay us in crypto? It's easier that way. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. Um, and so that was kind of like probably set off the you know, the initial like, okay, this, you know, there has to be an easier way here. Uh, and I'm not like, I mean, I, I've owned Ethereum for a long time now, but I'm not like, you know, religious about crypto. I know like as we get into these crypto communities, people are like fundamentalists about it in a way, you know, I'm not one of those, but I'm obviously like very curious. I was very curious by the technology, you know, enough to buy it. Um, and so that was, that was step number one or issue number one that we had to solve. Issue number two was, you know, we're effectively competing with somebody like Google Maps, right? And so we felt like, okay, if we're paying somebody, let's just make it, we have these like these tiles. And if you map them, you would earn five cents. Okay. Something like that. And I, I was like, okay, let's play this out here. If we play this out in this really works, well, Google has sitting on $120 billion of cash. They can pay somebody 25 cents. Right. And then all those people are be like, okay, like screw Hive Mapper. I'm only getting paid five cents. I'm going to go to 25 cents. 
And I felt like with crypto and what I started to see with Helium was there was this, I participate in the economics of this project, right? In a way that is beyond just transactional, right? And I think that was like very, it's a deeper emotional connection to the project than just getting paid five cents per tile. Um, and a lot of people that we have, this is proven out, which is a lot of the people, like right now, you know, you have to install the dash cam and you have to mount, the only thing you really have to do is you have to mount it properly, okay? So like, you obviously have to be looking at the road, you can't be looking up at the sky or you can't be looking down, you know, at, at, like at nothing at the dashboard or something like that. So you have to actually look at the So it takes about like maybe five minutes to, you know, optimize that, maybe a little bit less. And so when we had, when we were paying people cash, people did not care at all. Like gave no shits. Sorry, excuse my language. Um, and it was really frustrating. It was like, look, you're not getting paid because your look, your dash cam is like looking at the sky and they would yell at us and tell us we're a scam and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And we're like, no, literally like it's looking at the sky. You're not mapping the road. And we show them evidence. Um, now with the high vapor community that exists today, people will go to great lengths and try to help each other to make sure that the mount is, is correct. And so it's just like this different emotional feeling that people have because they feel they're a stakeholder, right, in this project, right? They want to see the thing succeed uh, in a way that simply didn't exist. Um, and I think really tapping into that is critical um, if you can do it. Uh, because it's beyond just the transaction, right? Like if Google were to go and copy what we're doing today, well, no, people really are invested in the idea, the concept of building something new from scratch and participating in the economics associated with that. Yeah, that's very underrated. And a lot of people talk about DAOs and communities, but DPIN, Decentralized Physical Infra Networks, are probably the best instance of DAOs that I'm aware of. Same with Helium and, and, and now HiMapper, where you kind of get the token has an effect on people to, it's like equity in the company, obviously not exactly like that, but there's some something interesting there. Um, so, okay, that's that's kind of the founding story and, and how you guys came to be uh, where you are today. For people who are uh, unfamiliar, just listening to this for the first time, could you maybe just explain exactly how, how this would work from kind of both sides, um, right? One, if you're a driver, and then two, if you're, maybe somebody interested in the mapping data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I was going to mention that in the beginning and I kind of failed to, to hit that point. It's a critical point. Okay, so there's, we're mapping the world. Uh, we're focused on street level maps. So we're not focused on like satellite or anything like that. And so what does that mean? So you buy this dash cam, there's two different models. One is like, about, I think about 250 bucks. Um, and then the other one, I think is a little bit pricier. It's like 500 or 450 now with a discount. Um, and you install the dash cam in your car. You can either install it front facing or you can do side facing as well. Um, and you connect it to this app and then you just drive, right? Like you just drive like you normally do, you know? So we don't ask you to like drive specific routes or anything like that. Um, and whatever your driving patterns are, great. If you drive like a bus, like in other words, like all you do all day long is go, you know, up and down Broadway, it's not going to be very effective, right? Um, and so we're really looking for people who definitely have a little bit more diversity than like just going to, you know, Starbucks every morning and back home. <laughs> um, and we can go a little bit more into why that is. Um, and so that's one mode of contribution. There's another mode of contribution called AI training. You do not need a dash cam. All you need is a phone or a computer. Uh, and there you're effectively training the map AI systems that actually extract out all of the different features of the map. So for example, we think something is a 25 mile per hour speed limit sign that is located in this position, in, you know, uh, at this precise location, you're effectively helping us determine A, is this really a 25 mile per hour speed limit sign? And then B, is it actually correctly positioned at this location? And so by doing that, you're training the AI systems to improve and improve and improve. Um, and so those are the two modes of contribution. Then what, what do we do? How, like who's using the map? Um, there are real customers today using the map. There's a set of mapping APIs that we provide. So there's one which is a very basic map image API where customers are ingesting all the image, this geolocated imagery that's incredibly fresh. 
and they're utilizing it in their own data products or supplementing their existing data products. And there are customers using that product. And there's customers, they're using the Map Features product. Map Features is effectively like, hey, I want to know about all the speed limit signs, all the stop signs, all the churn restriction signs, all the construction road work, et cetera, that is happening in this location or the entire United States or wherever it may be. Um, there will be other data products that will add over time. But there are really, if you kind of take a step back and you say, okay, who are the big customers of all this data, right? So, you know, Google has all their API products, um, billions of dollars, millions of millions of customers. You know, I know a ride-sharing company, not called Uber, not here in the United States, actually, who spends 25 to $30 million per year on Google Maps APIs, right? So it is a big you know, revenue driver is all the business customers that are consuming and utilizing these APIs in various ways. Um, they're very costly. Um, and we think that we can not only compete on lower cost, but also much fresher, right? Fundamentally, HiveMapper, because we're so much lower cost, we're seeing a given location 30 to 50 times more frequently than Google. Like that is not an exaggeration. You know, Google will see a location you know, like downtown San Francisco, maybe once every 12 months, maybe suburban Austin, maybe every two to four years, you know, places outside the United States and kind of more suburban, if they've seen it at all, maybe every eight to 10 years. So we're just going to be a lot fresher. Um, and, and this is the history of all technology, right? Which is fundamentally people want the freshest thing. The freshest thing is the most accurate thing. And, you know, Google is a little bit hamstrung because of their very, very costly approach to building these maps, utilizing these Google Street View cards, which are inherently exp expensive. Yeah, Ariel, so would you say that freshness is probably the killer feature um, of HiveMapper? And then with that, can you maybe explain what Burst is? I think it's a new, you know, feature that you guys have is really cool. Yeah. Um, yes, freshness is definitely the killer feature. Uh, I would also say that as the network expands in year two and year three, so we're only in year one, that coverage will also become a killer feature, right? We can go see places that Google doesn't see, right? Because ours are connected to just regular cars. They're not Google's review cars. Um, and so, you know, places like Kazakhstan, right? Or places like rural Brazil, that fundamentally, you know, you're not going to ship a Google Street View card to like Brazil for, you know, six months and then have it go to, the, you know, some small little town in Brazil. Like that's just not a good use of that asset. You're going to focus it on Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, right? And so, yes, over time, it's also going to be coverage as well. We're already hearing that from some customers who are being like, oh, you have this like, Rome, you know, town in Romania, right? Like that was never a thing that we could imagine. Um, okay, Burst basically a lot, like right now, all driving is passive, right? Like you just drive like you normally do. There's this thing that we just introduced about three or four months ago, which is called a Burst. A customer determines where to place a Burst. And what they're really saying is, I want this location to be mapped you know, new, freshly, or there's no coverage there and I would like to have coverage and I'm willing to pay a little bit more for it. So basically you can go open up the apps in some cities like Phoenix, Arizona and Houston and some others, and you will see some of these bursts. And it's quite phenomenal. Like, you know, one customer said to us, hey, you got to achieve at least 90% completion rate and their version of completion rate was that we were seeing their locations at least twice a week, we had 99%. And they were like, we don't believe it. <laughs> um, so it works. It works phenomenally well. And really, it's there. It's like, look, if you're in the neighborhood and you can just make a right-hand turn versus making a left-hand turn and maybe spend an extra five minutes, it could be worth your while, right? Maybe, maybe not. I think that's independent. You know, that, that's really up to the driver. Yeah, when I first heard of Burst, it made me think of two things. Um, one had to do with maybe this is a use case who supports today. I'm not sure. Say a private equity fund is investing in Costco's or they want to. You could potentially have that. That firm could actually pay to have that area mapped to see how many cars in the parking lot. That might be a little far-fetched. And then the other one is Pokemon Go, which I know you're a big fan of. I mean, if you think about maybe you'd have some stores uh, that could actually pay Pokemon Go, maybe their coffee shops in a certain area, to bring in like more 
Pokemon in that area to attract a certain type of clientele, right? And they could actually burst yeah. that to get traffic. And it, and you could do the same thing with HiveMap or just, you know, different use case. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I think like as it gets bigger, as the community gets bigger, like those types of opportunities grow. Like we hear that a lot because like a lot of the people who drive for HiveMap are today, they're Uber drivers, they're Lyft drivers, they're truck drivers, they're delivery drivers. And what we hear from them is like, A, this gives a kind of, you know, their job, I think, has a lot of meaning, right? They're providing, you know, really essential products and services to people every single day, but it can become monotonous, right? And so this adds like a layer of fun, a layer of discovery, a layer of purpose. Um, and I think a lot of the things that you mentioned there before speak to some of that, like, okay, I'm helping another business. I'm helping this map grow. I'm helping this community. And so you're starting to see that. But yeah, going back to the private equity, like what we what we started to hear is that, you know, if if you're in the uh, real estate investment business, you know, before you start to buy a property, you want to know everything about it, right? And so, yeah, of course, you pull up Google Street View and, you know, you pull up Google Satellite and whatever, but you really want to understand what this place looks like, you know, week after week. And maybe you want to look at it like, what is it, what's happening on a Tuesday versus a Friday, Right. And that's a very valuable data. And so we're starting to build out the tools. It's called look, it's called Scout, where you can do that more easily, right? It's just a really like optimized UI to enable those kinds of folks to be able to quickly do that kind of stuff. Quick break to tell you about an upcoming event I promise you don't want to miss. It's Blockwork's biggest and best institutional conference called DAS London. It's a two-day event happening in London this March. We're going to have over 700 institutions, 130 speakers, and a couple thousand of us all under one roof. Crypto is in a position for the first time to actually onboard these institutions, and they're showing up. We have companies from BlackRock to Visa launching real products in the space. We have the real-world asset narrative taking off. We have things like payments that have been exponentially growing. And then we have things like DeepEnd happening in the Solana ecosystem. There's a ton of capital right now in this institutional space. It's going to be coming on chain. It's going to completely change the industry. Whether you are an institution or you're a retail user, or you just want to learn more about what's going on in the space, this conference is for you. You're going to be able to meet some of the best and smartest people in the space. The speaker lineup is absolutely incredible and you'll get to hang out with me. But the best part is you actually get 20% off your ticket if you use Lightspeed 20 when checking out. That's Lightspeed 20. I put a link in the show notes. Um, I recommend buying this today because one, you'll forget about it. Two, these ticket prices go up every single month. So anyways, I hope to see you there. Now let's get back to the show. I'm curious on um, maybe if I put on my founder hat a little bit on maybe your strategy overall as you look to expand the business. And and what I mean by that is like what level, you know, you have kind of the bottom of the layer, which is providing raw mapping data. And then there's things you can build on top, right? So for example, you mentioned freshness of data that I could see being super useful for like a GPS app because in the streets of Toronto, roads get closed all the time. Ways your Google Maps doesn't update it, yeah. and I get rugged instantly by my GPS, and I have to do all those things. And it, it could be pretty cool for me to um, use this as part of my maybe driving app or something like that. Or um, I could even see it if, from like a business point of view. Like, let's say I'm a car manufacturer like Ford, and maybe I want to partner with you guys and tell my purchasers, "Hey, you guys will actually also earn crypto if you buy this car if if you're yeah. in some weird area that doesn't have much coverage." So I guess all that is to say. What do you see High Mapper's role in like the next five years as you guys grow and cover more of the world? Is it going to be just fundamentally focused on the raw data part, or is it going to be more like picking certain verticals and doubling down on those? Yeah, so I think there's there's three major segments from a customer perspective. There is kind of the traditional, you know, data, which I think you alluded to, which I think we're you know we have we have paying customers in that segment today. And at the end of the day, though, it's usually a, a, a human being utilizing the data in some form or another, right? So, for example, um, you know, we, we have a customer today who's, you know, the ultimate consumer of the data is an analyst, okay? Uh, and, you know, we have other customers today that, again, it's kind of like these map editors, whatever, like, but, it, but fundamentally, it's a human. Then there's another customer group, which is RoboTaxis and ADAS. ADAS basically stands for Advanced Driver Systems. Ford has their product called Blue Cruise, and they charge you know $800 a year for it. So not all the cars have all the sensor package that can do it, but it basically takes over driving in certain situations. So highways and major arterial roads and stuff like that. Um, I think that is a very compelling product, quite frankly. Um, and then there's a third customer segment group, which is the consumer, the navigation app experience. For that, you obviously need scale, 
right? And you need all the layers of the map, right? So you need beyond just the layers that we have today, you need to continue to build more and more layers. So you need places, you need traffic, you need all these additional layers that we would build out over time. So the way we're looking at it is the first one, we can satisfy that today, okay? And we have customers in that group. The second group is we can also satisfy their requirements today and we're going after them, we're going after them aggressively. That one is really interesting because there's 1.5 billion cars in the road and you know, they are now consuming more and more data every single day. And the data requirements that they have meet, ensure that it needs to be fresh. Let me restate that. A car, you know, unlike us, we look at a map and we're like, oh shit, the road's closed. Okay, I got to go this way. For a, you know, an ADAS system or a robo-taxi system, if there's construction, like it needs to know about that and it needs to make sure that that information is very, very accurate, right? And so the requirements that they have from a freshness and a reliability perspective are understandably quite high and we're a great fit for that. So that's a massive new market. And it's a market that's monetizable because consumers are showing that they're willing to pay whatever 800 bucks a year, a thousand bucks a year, or 2000 bucks a year for these ADAS products. Um, the third one is, is, is obviously massive, right? You're talking about billions of people who use maps every single day, but it will take more years to kind of get to that level of ensuring that we have all the layers. But if I look forward five years from now, yeah, hundreds of millions of cars, ADAS, robo-taxis are relying upon HiveMapper to navigate safely and efficiently to their destination. And hundreds of millions of consumers are relying upon HiveMapper to navigate safely, efficiently, and so forth. Um, that's how you get really big and that's how you become really compelling in the mapping world, right? Like if you're just providing data APIs to the traditional players, you can build a good business, but it's never going to be a business that is, you know, churning out billions upon billions of dollars a year in revenue. Hmm. There's rumors that HiveMapper has close in partnerships with some pretty big name companies. I don't think you can disclose any of those yet, at least from what I've seen. So I'm curious if you can. Uh, but if not, I'm curious when you're talking with these bigger, whether it's corporations, companies, et cetera, like what's the main pushback or hesitation? Like when I think of DPIN, um, maybe it's lower cost, but it might be hard in an investment committee meeting when you mention crypto, uh, whether that's just because of regulatory reasons or also just reliability because you're dealing with a DAO. And do you trust a, a DAO or like a board? And I, for me, I could see how that could have some complications. So I'm curious what you've experienced. So, so far, that hasn't been an issue. I mean, people have asked us about the crypto side, and I think they're more they're curious about it, but they don't, frankly, care that much about it. Because when they're dealing with Hive, there's really two sides of HiveMapper. There's HiveMapper Inc., you know, regular startup, Delaware-based cor corporation, where effectively a developer that uses and licenses the data from the HiveMapper network. The network is, like you said, controlled by the DAO, controlled by the Honey Token, that, uh, and governed by that. So when you know we close a customer, so let's say the customer comes to us and says, okay, I want $100,000 worth of your data product. We then have to basically go and license X amount from the HiveMapper network. And then we go and do all that. That's like, they don't care about that. You know, they're just like, okay, you know, is this data high quality? Is it fresh? You know, the thing that we do see is privacy. There's a lot of questions understandably about privacy in the world of mapping. And there's a lot of customers that want to make sure that they're working with a company that respects people's privacy, both from the contributor, but also from the perspective of the bystanders who are potentially just, you know, being seen by the dash cam. And so there's like literally like, I don't know, like a 30 page document that we have about how we actually go and collect this data in a privacy centric manner. And there are some customers that are spending, you know, weeks, if not months, digging into this stuff at a very deep level. So talking about maybe the crypto side here, I, I do have two follow-up questions. W one is just so I, I really understand how you guys utilize crypto here. It seems like the main purpose of using a blockchain here is facilitating rewards and payouts um, of, of the Honey token. Yeah, uh, um, and okay, so that's number one, just correct me if I'm wrong there. And then maybe if you have any future plans for putting more data on chain, yeah. I know, you know people have different philosophies on that. And then two, um, I guess that's probably something you could do on 
most networks, I would say. So th- that is to say, uh, why did you guys maybe go with Solana? Yeah, I, there is this, uh, we, we will add more data on chain. Let me just like address that one because I think it's interesting. Um, you know, maps are very controversial. They're geopolitically sensitive. Um, you know, wars have been fought over maps in terms of somebody draws the lines here, someone draws the lines there. Um, you're, I think you're seeing that sometimes play out all over the world today. Um, and so we will take boundaries as well as what we call uh, network level privacy zones and put those on chain. So like a network level privacy zone would be is like there's a military base here or, you know, the CIA headquarters is here. And we don't map those areas. Like if you were to go into a, inside a military base, um, we just will turn off. And I think it's important that that stuff reside on chain. So it's all there. If we make changes to it, everyone can see those changes and all that kind of stuff. Um, because it, it, it will become like this, you know, geopolitical volleyball in many ways. From a Solana perspective, to me, it came down to trust and costs. So let's start with cost. I mean, look, as an entrepreneur, you're taking on a lot of risk and you're trying to like just constantly reduce risk, reduce risk, reduce risk in order to grow your business. And so when I looked at this and I said, you know, Ethereum, okay, there's all these crazy gas fees Um, with Solana. That was clearly not the case. Um, And I said, well, why would I, you know, potentially incur this additional cost that could balloon, right, Um, at any given moment in time? And it just kind of seemed like an idiotic cost to take on. So that was the primary thing. And then the secondary thing was trust, trust in the Solana ecosystem that I started to kind of look around and then trust in talking to people like Anatoly and Raj. And they said, look, if, if this doesn't work for you, then by all means, we will help you migrate to another chain that does work for you, right? And I think that was really important thing to be said, which was like, you know, we're gonna make, we're gonna try to make this work, but for whatever reason, if it doesn't work, you know, we know you got to grow this business and we're going to help you move off. You know, we've never had to have that conversation, obviously, because we've been very pleased with with Solana. I mean, most people don't realize this. We only have like one engineer who's working on this, all the Solana infrastructure. I, I view that as a positive. You know, like I don't want 20 engineers working on Solana infrastructure because that's, you know, like that's time away from the map. That's time away from other stuff that we could be doing. Ariel, is there any credence to a network effect of all these deep end projects on Solana? So Anatoly had a tweet the other day and he's like, there should be a startup that has a teleport autonomous car that's using hive mapper data that's say using render for the GPU calculations in the back end. And it's like, is there a network effect? Yeah, there is. I mean, like in terms of on the contributor side, absolutely. Right. On the contributor side, we see this, which is like, hey, you know, I'm introduced to Helium. Um, and then I started with Hive Mapper because I'm an Uber driver or like I know an Uber driver and I bought a dash cam for him and we split the tokens. And you, there is absolutely, especially in what I would refer to, you know, the deep in projects that are physically in, in the in the real world. Um, I mean, I think renders obviously a deep in, but as well, but it's more virtual, right? Ours, you have to be in certain locations at certain times to be able to actually build them out. And so, yes, that is very, uh, I agree with him on that. There is this kind of like great, you know, network effect ecosystem that you can tap into all these people who want to build, they want to help build new things. I will also say there's a lot of people coming into Deepin and I think they learned some wrong lessons from Helium. I love Helium. I mean, Amir is the, you know, the George Washington in many ways of the Deepin. Um, And so... But, you know, Helium was founded or, you know, started to grow in a very specific moment in time. And the supply side, I think they would argue, kind of grew too fast, right? That wasn't like, they didn't do anything. It was just like the crazy markets kind of took them and ran with them, right? And I think there are some entrepreneurs who learn like, oh, you just have to have supply, grow supply, grow supply, grow supply. And I'm like, grow supply for what, right? Really, it's about matching demand and supply. It's not about just growing supply for the sake of growing supply. And I think a lot of people from the external, you know, looking in say, oh, my God, look at this thing. It has crazy growth in terms of blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, a lot of that is probably useless. And you're just throwing away tokens and you're just throwing away time and energy and money and whatever it is. And so I think we have to kind of like what's the right lessons that have been learned from Helium and others 
And if we see what they're doing now with mobile, it's very clever, right? They're going after specific regions. They're going after specific incentives. You know what I'm saying? Like, look, if you place your uh, your 5G uh, hotspot or whatever they call it in these specific locations, you will earn more than somebody else because we need this coverage here, right? Because we know we have demand here. And so I think that demand supply matching is the real interesting part. And I think Burst speaks to some of that. Um, that more entrepreneurs should focus on versus just like supply growth for the sake of showing the community supply growth. You tweeted that most Web3 companies fail for the same, same reason that Web2 companies fail, and that's that they're competing for the wrong KPIs. What is the main KPI for HiveMapper? The main, the, the main KPI right now is like for a given region, how many you know API calls are like hitting that specific region. Okay, so for example, you know, now one of the customers is basically coming in, you know, they, they put a purchase order in early this year is relatively small, you know, five digits, and they came back and they did, you know, another purchase order for six digits, and they came back and did another one for six digits. Why? Because we were actually had demand in the right places, right? Or now with Burst, we have the right tools to help them get coverage or better freshness in the right places, Right. And so we had another customer came in and they said, you know, they started just actually in San Francisco and we had to hit certain metrics, right? So we had to hit certain freshness metrics. Like we had to see the given locations that they added to the map X amount of times per week. If we hit that, then they said, okay, we'll expand this to, you know, more regions across the United States. Well, we hit those metrics. And so those are the, the things that I actually focus on, you know, every day is like, are we hitting the metrics that matter to our customers in terms of coverage and freshness? And, you know, given where their API calls, are they actually getting back something that they wanted? Uh, that matters a lot more to me than, you know, how many dash cams we sold last month or blah, blah, blah. God, it's just such a fascinating business. Um, I've never really seen quite, this is a really niche, niche, but very impactful industry. Um, I guess there's so many ways to go with it. I'm just curious on a personal level, like what are some of the biggest challenges you think that you guys have to overcome to make this the next billion dollar business? Yeah. I mean, to me, I think the holy grail is becoming part of, you know, not just integrating into all these ADAS products, which is really hard, very impactful in terms of their business as but, you know, if you look at Google Maps, why, why did it become so dominant and such a, you know, big, a, a significant revenue stream on the business side? Well, they had all these customers that are already using them on the consumer side, right? And I think that, like, it's a lot easier to go into your business, you know, whether you're FedEx or, you know, Uber or whatever and say, like, hey, I think we should use this mapping product because I already use it in my personal life, right? And I'm very, I'm, I'm very happy with it. And so to me, that is the big unlock there, right? Which is like, if you get into consumers' lives and you get into hundreds of millions of consumers' lives, then the business side actually becomes easier and easier, right? You're getting lead generation for people who are just kind of pulling you into their organization. And so to me, that is, you, you got to build a lot more layers to the map, right? You need traffic layers, you need places layers and so forth. You need obviously turn by turn directions and all that kind of stuff. But then you start to achieve something that will be around for decades upon decades um, because it is now, you know, being used by tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in their daily lives. And like once you kind of get pulled into, the, you know, that world, um, you're going to then pull it into other parts of your life as well, especially if you work in a business or a car manufacturer or whatever it is. Um, and so... Yeah, I think it's it's challenging because you're both going after B2B and B2C. But I think if you look at a lot of the B2B, like, you know, Mapbox, who I have a lot of respect for, I think they've had a bigger challenge because, yes, they have a great product in many ways. I think it can be better if they use HiveMapper data, quite frankly. Um, but, you know, the, the, yes, they have to kind of start from, they have to prove themselves from point zero with every customer Versus if some of those customers were already using their product in their daily lives, there would kind of be this built-in trust, right? Where you wouldn't have to start from point zero with that customer. I was listening to the Good Game podcast and they had Kyle Samani on and he mentioned actually HiveMapper and Filecoin. He was saying HiveMapper is the perfect partner for Filecoin in that you have high 
it's a relatively high compute and storage cost. Um, so I'm just curious, especially with this LLMs probably that you're using, AI, et cetera, how do you control those costs? Think about economics and would you use something like Filecoin? Yeah, so um, we definitely focus a lot on those costs, 100%. Um, and so today we use AWS. We've been talking to the Filecoin guys. We haven't we haven't transitioned over yet. It's a it's a non trivial transition. Um, and there's also costs in integrated. You know, like moving data off of AWS is sometimes just as expensive as moving it on. Probably more expensive because <laughs> they don't want you to take the data off. But um, you know, the short version is yes, it is a Compute is being moved more and more to the edge, right? To the dash cam itself. That is the way that you bring down the costs on the compute side, like full stop, right? You got to move this, the compute to the edge. And there's a lot of things that we've done in the last six to nine months to achieve some of that, uh, a lot of those cost savings. On the storage side, the thing that we're trying to do now more and more is say, do we need this new image? Like, is there anything new in this image that we actually need it? Or is it like, okay, or maybe we have a better one because it's sunnier and now it's cloudier. So let's, you know, choose the sunnier one versus the cloudier one and then just, you know, dispose of one which is crappier. So there's a lot of things that like that that can actually help us from a storage perspective, but it is very, you know, very, very focused on it. Look, I love the Filecoin guys. It's a little bit complicated, to be honest. Like I've, I've shared this feedback with them as well. And I think this is like a struggle across crypto is that, like if the crypto people get a hold of the thing, the thing becomes super complicated. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you need like, you know, real developers or business people or whatever, you real human beings to use your product. And they don't, they're trying to solve a problem fundamentally. And they don't really care about the crypto stuff. And if you let the crypto stuff get in the way of that, man, you got a big problem. And so I, I think that hopefully... You know, people are starting to realize like crypto is a technology and it has specific applications and specific use cases that it's really good for. You know, our case is about coordinating and incentivizing and rewarding, you know, tens of thousands of people all over the world in an, in an open and a transparent and trustworthy way. Right. And everything else we want to simplify the crap out of. Right. Because like we have now people who came in from like the, you know, what uh, mapping geek, I'm a mapping geek, but so they're mapping geeks too. Right. And it's interesting to hear their feedback on HiMap where they love it from the simplicity, you know, in terms of it's easy, like it's a dash cam, it's passive, you know, all this. But then they're like, what's a wallet, Ariel? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they like, they're smart people. Okay. They're very smart people. They're very technically savvy, but they're like, oh, I had to learn about what a wallet is and all these other concepts. And, you know, so there's already like enough complexity in crypto that, you know, layering it on or like deeply intertwining it with every aspect of your product, in my view, is a big mistake. Well, I, I think it's amazing that we have people coming to the space, working with you that are that are not, maybe, I mean, you're crypto native, but aren't obsessed with like, what is a wallet and know all these other things. It's really just like creating a better product and business strategy, which I think is awesome. I'm curious, since uh, you call yourself a map geek, what do you think about the rest of crypto? Is there any other sector that interests you or uh, were, did you follow crypto long before you started Hivemapper? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that um, what I do believe in is, you know, the class, look, whether you believe what the United States government did was right or wrong in terms of freezing the assets of Russia when they invaded Ukraine, I think it was a wake-up call, right, um, to, holy crap, the U.S. government is weaponizing the dollar, and it's not really my dollar. And so I do think that's a very fundamental, you know, issue for the entire world to deal with, which is... When you use these other assets that are, you know, are ultimately controlled by the government, they're not really yours. And um, so I find that incredibly fascinating. Um, so that aspect of crypto, I think, is, is really interesting. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Deepin. Um, I think there will be many, many more you know, products and applications in Deepin. I think we're just at the early phases of this. Um, I think we're starting to kind of going back to my previous point, I think we're starting to hopefully build more formidable products that really focus on that demand supply equation that I was talking about and not just like, you know, metrics that for the sake of crypto metrics. Um, so I do think there's there. I will say that I think that I've been a little bit disappointed that there's been so much venture capital dollars flowing into infrastructure layer. Maybe I don't want, look, I think between like things like Solana and Helios and others, like there's a lot of good things already, right? This idea that we got to build like, you know, 
a ton more infrastructure, that doesn't seem to me like the big problem. The big problem seems to me like there's not enough really good high quality applications that are then taking, you know, crypto to a much wider audience. Like that feels to me like the fundamental problem. And I think within the VC community, like there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite for that. And they're just kind of focused on the infrastructure level, probably because it feels safer. I don't know. I, I haven't talked to a lot of VCs about this, but I think that fundamentally feels a little bit broken at the moment, which is like what the market needs versus like what investors are investing in. Yeah, it is absolutely broken. Um, there's new L2s coming out every day, L3s. Um, and so, you know, I am curious because it's good that you point that out because one of the things that I'm super interested in is, okay, how do we get more traditional Silicon Valley Web2 type kind of founders interested in crypto and actually make it a viable option for them to help enhance their businesses, products, uh, or enable new business models that they couldn't do before? And you've done it, right? So you came from Web2. You actually had no intention of using crypto. You kind of just, like, it's it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like crypto literally actually enhanced your business in a way that not using crypto wouldn't have. And so that's actually quite rare uh, in, in my experience, right? Mo most of the time people will say something like, why, you, why do you even need a blockchain for this? But it's like in your case, well, you tried it without a blockchain and the blockchain worked better. And so I'm, I'm curious, in your own words, like what do you think we need to do to attract more A-caliber founders into crypto uh, or or you yeah. know, just yes. home run startups. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, less Sam Bakeman frieds on the front page of the Wall Street Journal <laughs> would be a good start. <laughs> like, I think, you know, fundamentally, that, that that's a big issue, right? Which is a lot of people don't want to be associated with it because we have had some bad actors. And I always tell people, I was like, look, I was, I was in search you know, and search had this thing called search spam, which is effectively a lot of bad actors trying to infiltrate the first or second pages of our Yahoo search results. And they were effectively spam, right? Like, like, like fraud effectively, right? And the same thing for, you know, Yahoo Mail. And so it wasn't like Web2 didn't have a lot of bad actors, but Web2, I think, did a much better job of hiding or tamping down those bad actors, right? Um, I mean, there's a whole cybersecurity industry now around Web2, effectively, right? So there's obviously a lot of bad actors. But we've definitely had our fair share, uh, in, when I say our, you know, in the crypto world of just outright fraud at a really large scale. And it hasn't just been Sam, it's been others as well. And that, you know, just keeps people away, uh, fundamentally. And... I think it's start, hopefully we're starting to close that chapter. And I think that there's voices like yourself and Brian and Anatole kind of speaking out like, no, this is like, this is a Ponzi scheme. This is ridiculous. This is just total bullshit. You should not engage with this. And I think we just need more and more voices like that across the industry. And I think it will just give us a lot more credibility. Like when we go to, you know, to the Senate and to Congress people in general and say, look, we think there's regulation that's appropriate, you know, because this is a new technology and this is what it looks like. If they see the industry, you know, trying to tamp down, not tamp down, basically like eradicate all these bad actors uh, and ensure that new ones don't come into the system, then I think they're going to take us a lot more seriously. Feels like a big part of that's showing what's only possible with crypto. Ariel, I'm curious with your experience. You've kind of tried to do this in the past. Do you think with 6 million unique roads mapped to percent of the world, I think it's 80 million miles total, and that's in less than a year. Do you think a VC-backed company could start today and replicate that over the first year? Or is this really only possible because of you leveraging crypto? Yeah, I think, I think crypto played a huge role. I mean, like what Merce said is 100% correct, which is like this is a very important tool you know, that we utilized, I think, quite effectively. Uh, and without this tool, you know, we're much, I mean, look, if you just compare like us to like previous iterations of this, we're growing a lot faster. I mean, we're, we're growing four times faster than Google Street View did. And Google Street View, I can assure you, Google had a lot more capital than we did. Um, so, you know, we are definitely growing faster than 
a lot of competitors out there because crypto and the way that we've employed it is a very important tool. Um, so 100%. And, you know, I've gotten asked like, oh, will you go talk to the folks in DC about it and whatever and all that kind of stuff. And I like, generally like my answer is like, not really. And the reason for that is because um, I don't think their, their minds are prepared to hear it. Like I can say this and I can share it with them, right? And I can go testify and whatever it is. But I think you just have a set of people in DC now whose minds do not want to hear that, right? And so if I go and talk it like that, you know, like it'll all make logical sense to them. And then they will still vote the way they're going to vote because they have some kind of existing biases against it or for it. And so I don't think my voice is going to actually like change the dynamic in any meaningful way. What will change it is actually having real customers, right? Utilizing the product, getting real value out of it and starting to say, no, 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 no. This is actually better and more cost-effective than Google, right? That's going to be a lot more interesting to the DC crowd than me going and talking. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Maybe we can... Um focus on breaking up map monopolies instead of uh, sandwich monopolies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's not enough so, sandwich diversity out there, Mert. <laughs> I was going to say, so, you know, you are a repeat founder. And, and in fact, you've been in this specific domain for a while. And that's generally what I would say. And, you know, what do I know? But having super deep domain knowledge in this like specialized field is generally the kind of recipe for building a great company, which seems like it's working out pretty well for you. I guess I'm curious, what what are some lessons you've learned since you've been a founder about the nature of startups, um, some, some mistakes you've made? Just, um, we have a lot of people on Solana who are either Series A or seed stage founders, or just maybe looking to start their own ventures. You know, I'm, I'm just curious to hear a bit about some of the lessons you've learned and maybe anything you can relate to them. I think tolerance for pain is probably the most important thing. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, obviously you have to be really passionate and very curious about your domain. Like I've tried to do other startups outside of the, outside of the mapping world or the geo world. And I just like, you know, I could do it for like three, six, maybe even nine months. And then I get bored of it, like just very quickly. Like, this is kind of cool. Like, yeah, I built something, some customers are using it. Like, that's awesome, but I don't know. Like, do I want to do this for another three, four, or five, 10 years? No, not, not really. I don't want to do it for another day, you know, like, let alone another three years. So, you know, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm really passionate and interested and curious about maps and, you know, navigation and, you know, how people in cars and vehicles move from one location to another and all that kind of stuff. Like, that just fascinates me. Um, and so, I think you, you have to have that, right? Because otherwise you're not going to build anything really great because you're not going to want to go like 10 layers deeper, all that kind of stuff. But fundamentally it comes down to like, are you willing to like be very embarrassed because you will, like there's going to be like some moments where you go down a lot of dark, you know, things that just don't work out. And a lot of other people would be like, why am I going to do that? Like, that's just like, I don't want to, I'll look like a fool. And like, whether you tell yourself that, you know, or there's kind of some subconscious thing of like it's kind of the same outcome, which is like you just don't go there because you don't want to be like fail or be made a fool or be embarrassed or whatever it is. And, um, you know, yeah, tolerance for pain because like, you know, you're just going to get told no and you're going to get told this is dumb and you're going to get told a lot, all that crap that you hear all the time. I think this is a big part of the problem with America today. This kind of just kind of go macro is like there doesn't, seem to be like a level of optimism that there used to be, you know, not just everything, like everyone kind of looks at things from like a very like negative, pessimistic view, like the world is ending, climate change is going to end us all, stop having kids, you know, to like AI is going to kill us all, to like, you know, self-driving cars are going to kill us all, like Jesus, you know, like, no, that's all not true. (laughs) Um. And so that's the part that I think is concerning for, you know, for, for entrepreneurialism in America, which is makes America very, very dynamic. And um, yeah, I think it's pretty concerning, actually. 
Maybe that's what Congress should focus on is like how to bring this level of optimism and entrepreneurialism back to America, which is really what made it so great. Yeah, 100%. As somebody from Canada, I can uh, agree even more since we everybody who starts a company in Canada just moves to the States. Um, well, I mean, so pain tolerance, um, being passionate about what you're doing, all, all, all good advice. I am curious on a personal level, and I do like getting philosophical at the end and asking people, um, why are you still doing this? Like, what is kind of the North Star? What are you trying to accomplish? You know, what's the chip on the shoulder here? Well, one is to show that, you know, Google's not the only game in town. So I think that there's like a, you know, David versus Goliath kind of piece of it, which is just like very fascinating to me and very, I'm a competitive person. And so just from a pure competitive perspective, that, you know, definitely motivates me. Um, you know, the other part of it is, there's a couple other parts of it. One is, you know, creating something that lives well beyond my lifespan on this earth, right? This idea that, you know, 50 years from now, 70 years from now, this this machine will still start to, will continue to work because there's incentives, because there's structure, because there's something useful that is being created out of it every single moment of the day. Like that, that's very fascinating to me, you know, on a philosophical level. Um, and then on the third dimension is, look, I think maps um, are an essential tool for human beings and um, they should be owned by the people who use them. They shouldn't be owned by some massive corporation, right? We all use them and oftentimes we'll, we also create them, right? And so I think it's fundamentally wrong that today, you know, Google Maps is utilizing all your data and then turning around and basically building the proprietary data that they and only they can monetize, right? And they only they and only get value out of. And so I think this, you know, as the as the primary human species, as the only human species on this earth, and we're the ones who use all these maps to navigate this earth that we all live on, that that map should actually be owned by the people who are building it and using it. I love your passion. And I think that's one thing that's kind of beautiful about Deepin is it brings in a different type of entrepreneur than maybe the typical crypto builder in the sense that you're working with crypto, which is digital, but also like real world assets. And some people just like to feel something or see something that they built. And I think that's going to attract a whole new type of builder that crypto hasn't had, because some people do want to change things in the real world, not just digitally. So I think that's really cool. Um, Mert, would you want to do you want to close out with a rapid fire? Let's do it. All right, cool. So time for rapid fire. I'm just going to ask quick questions. Um, try to answer quickly. Just try to have fun. Okay. Um, okay. So number one mistake crypto founders make? Growth for the sake of growth. Number one mistake Web2 founders make? Um, raising VC dollars way too early and way too much. If you had to onboard somebody to crypto, but you couldn't use HiveMapper, what would you show them to use? Helium. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an easy other one. Um, okay. What do you think is the most overrated concept in the entire industry right now? Um... I'm not sure overrated, but I just uh, like L2s, L3s, L4s. Like it just feels like complexity on top of complexity on top of complexity. And so, you know, I know there's like a lot of dollars chasing that at the, at the moment, but it just feels like, you know, to me, a road to nowhere. Or a road to more complexity, which is like the exact opposite of what crypto needs at the moment. What does America need to do to be optimistic again? Hmm. I think we need like a Steve Jobs type of figure, you know, um, Elon is obviously a great entrepreneur, but he's not a Steve Jobs in terms of his, you know, his ability to communicate in very clear terms, in very philosophical terms, in very inspiring ways like Steve Jobs did. Um, and I think we're missing that kind of person today. Who are three of your favorite founders or CEO types in the industry today? Um, not crypto, just all of tech or all of business. 
Yeah, uh, I think, you know, probably uh, Steve Jobs for sure. I don't know, he's not alive, unfortunately, anymore, but definitely I've read a lot about him and um, very inspired by what he did. Uh, Jensen Hong at, uh, I don't know how I pronounce his last name, but Jensen at, from NVIDIA. Um, and then, you know, the one that I think is doesn't get enough credit, this isn't directly a CEO, but I think this is a venture capitalist, so is... Um, you know, what Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures did, I don't know, you know, if your audience is going to know him, but I think people should look him up, is pretty phenomenal. Like, because what he did wasn't just like, okay, he's going to jump, you know, jump on a new trend and, you know, choose the first or second or third best. Like, I think oftentimes he invested in things like Coinbase way, way, way before other people realized what was going on. And, you know, I think he did that with Twitter as well. And so he had like over many decades, he saw things at a very early stage, well before most people did. And he didn't care what other people thought. I mean, that to me is like a venture capitalist, um, you know, not just someone who's like, okay, like there's whatever 50 deals going by my desk and I'm going to pick three or four or five and like one will like take off and there you go. I made my money. <laughs> Like, I think, I think he would find that, I don't know the guy, but, you know, um, I think he would find that pretty boring. What is the most underrated quality in founders? Um, yeah, focus and tolerance for pain. You know, like focus, because if you're trying to do 20 different things and go after 20 different markets all at the same time, I think you're just going to fail. Like if you're jumping from like one thing to the next to the next, you know, I think that's also like a big red flag. Um, and then, you know, tolerance for pain. That one's hard to, you know, because some people who are great communicators can hide it. You know, there's like a lot of things that it's kind of hard to figure out who has that tolerance for pain. But to me, like, um, like if you're a VC and you want to figure out like, you know, who's going to really stick with something if you could figure that out and you have like a sixth sense about that that's pretty phenomenal uh, but that's that's hard like I, I mean i don't do investing as a profession maybe you guys do a little bit but on the side but like if you could figure that out i feel like you could make a lot of money likely very similar but what about when you interview people what qualities are you looking for or do you have a specific question you like to ask i i like this question um what's one thing that you believe that very few other people believe um, because you're really trying to understand, like, are they willing to go away from where society is pulling them, right? Just every single day we're getting hammered, right? Like by our friends, by our family, by, you know, advertising that we see, by, you know, things written in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal to believe a certain way, to believe a certain narrative. And so if you're willing to say, you know what, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Here's what I actually believe something exact opposite. That means is like you're a critical thinker. You don't care that much about like what other people think and you have your own perspective on things. And so therefore you're, you know, potentially not always, but potentially have a higher tolerance for pain and, a, you know, more resilience um, and not just going to kind of go with the flow. And I think that's really important to start up, right? Because at a startup, you're fundamentally doing something that, I mean, if it was easy and if it was like, you know, everybody knew it was going to work, then like, <laughs> like a hundred other companies would have done it, right? Um, and so I think that's a really important question. I mean, obviously, like the person has to have certain skills and capabilities and, you know, experience and that kind of stuff. But that to me is a pretty big one. And, and it's hard. Like, even if you, even if you know the question in advance, you know, you may still stumble on it. And so it's not like one of those questions where like Microsoft or Google, right? Where it's like, you know, people be like, oh, they asked this kind of question, you know? And if you had like, you know, pre-briefing on it, then you would probably do better on it. It's not one of those types of questions. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good one. Um, what is the number what, one piece of advice? What do you guys ask? Oh, I asked some new ones. I asked some weird stuff. <laughs> um, I ask like philosophical questions, technical questions, different scenarios. It depends on the role. Um, I at Helios basically our hiring practices, and I stole this from Coinbase. We do work trials, right? So we'll 
actually work with the person and see what they're capable of in practice for like two, three weeks. And then that's mutually beneficial as well because they can see if they like it. And then obviously it's paid. Um, I, I have asked that question before, but I find that people kind of just BS their way through it. And, and I'm like, eh, that's not really an unpopular opinion. Right. And, and, and yeah, uh, that's true. I, the, the one I got was uh, every male should uh, shave their entire, sorry, uh, wax their entire body, all, all body hair. <laughs> that's an interesting one. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I was like, that's, that's, yeah. Uh, and they're like, every, you know, every male should do that at least once in their lifetime. And he was like, he was very adamant about it. <laughs> a swimmer? No, he wasn't even a swimmer. He was just like, it was a normal dude. Like, it was like, was that? Yeah, I thought he was like into biking or swimming. I asked him exactly. I was like, are you a biker or a swimmer? He's like, no. He's like, I just think that like everyone should do it and do it once to see like if they're, you know, and then he had a whole bunch of reasons like, you know, females do it. And then he's like, do you have the tolerance for pain associated with that? And a bunch of other stuff. Do you hire him? Uh, we, we made him an offer. Unfortunately, he didn't accept. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, funny. Yeah. Uh, he was pretty... It's a pretty good answer. I was like, I was. I mean, I remember. It. I'm, I'm sharing it with you guys, you know. Uh, so I, I've had I've had some pretty interesting ones. Well, can't really top that. So I'll final question will be, what's the best way to get started with High Mapper for people listening to this? Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to become a contributor, you just go to HiveMapper.com and you can either buy a dash cam or you can start playing these AI trainer games immediately. Um, if you're interested in using the data, there's a whole kind of mapping con- data console that we have, or you can just reach out to us via hi at HiveMapper.com and we can help you out. Love it. Ariel, thanks so much for joining. I, I think before starting this podcast, I was pretty skeptical of Deepin and what you know what it could actually do, what the future was. But after interviewing several companies and looking at HiveMapper, I'm like genuinely excited. I think it's one of the most exciting things that we have in crypto right now. So thank you for joining the industry. Thanks, it gives everybody a lot more hope. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Garrett. Thanks, Mert. Sweet. We'll see you next time. All right. I've got a little ending note here. First, thank you so much for listening to the full episode. If you really liked it, hit subscribe. But secondly, make sure you sign up for DAS. This is BlockWorks' biggest institutional conference happening in London in March. I've included a link in the show notes and also a discount code. Get 20% off. Make sure to use Lightspeed20 when you sign up. All right. I'll see you there. And I'll see you next time on Lightspeed.